Well, good morning, everybody, and happy, 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 happy Resurrection Weekend. I'm sports family therapist, Dr. Lauren Pitts. That guy right I'm there. Ronnie, I am Ronnie Ransom, former student athlete and future LPC, future LPC. Soon come, soon come. Good morning, everybody. This is episode 119 of House Talk Pregame. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. We hope everybody's had a great week. We got a great topic lined up. We have a guest for this week's show. Really looking forward to uh, introducing her in a few seconds and, and, and getting the show started. We have a great topic lined up for everybody today. We're going to be talking about communication. How lovely of a topic we're talking about today. You know, <laughs> We always talk about communication, how important communication is in all aspects of our life. Dr. Pitts, did you know that 70% of our communication, though, is through nonverbal? I did know that. I did know that. A lot that. of times. And a lot of times people don't understand that we're always constantly communicating to those around us, whether we're saying something or not. So mm -hmm. we're going to talk about, you know, well, how does communication impact our athletes and coaches and how can they find different tips and tools that make can help them improve their communication and cohesion amongst each other, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, how uh, how also, you know, outside of just coaches and athletes communicating, but how media, how journalists and things like that can better communicate with athletes and really get an understanding of you know, the programs and things that they're covering. So with that being said, we have a, a, a special guest with us this morning. We have Miss Courtney Mendenhall. Courtney, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm doing pretty good. Awesome. 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 So Courtney, so I know we had a chance to uh, kind of meet and greet with you yesterday and everything before the show. So um, if you're okay with it, we're going to get started. Well, before we get started, Dr. Pitts, did you have any mental health tips of the week? Any news that you saw this week that you wanted to share? I have a couple of things. I was, and you oh, know, I'm cutting up and clowning. So my mental health tip is sort of sports related, but not Ron. That, mm -hmm. Did I ever tell you that I can't swim? I don't know how to that swim. I don't really? know how to swim. I don't know how to swim. And here's your funny. So once upon a time, I could swim under, uh, uncover your face. Once upon a time, I could swim underwater. And my son's father says, so let me guess, if you come up for air, you're going to drown. I'm like, Everybody got jokes. So I was like, whatever. So my niece is here for a week for spring break and she mm -hmm. loves, loves, loves the water. She is a true fish. She's a marine animal. Mm -hmm. So we go to this huge indoor water park called Epic Waters in Grand Prairie. Right. Well, she convinces me who can't swim because she can swim she convinces me to get in this double inner tube type thing and walk up to heaven because <laughs> all them steps at 55 <laughs> my legs are like oh so this is what we're doing today <laughs> we walk up we walk up to heaven to get in this thing and it's a tube and i'm like this double tube is not going to fit in that tube. No, I know that it is. Come on. It's going to be fun. No, it's not. <laughs> no, no, it's not. But okay, because I love you, I'm going to do it. So the little girl that works there, she's like, oh, man, you're going to be fine. For real? That's what we're going to do? The, that's the first tip you know it's not going to be right. fine. Lies. So we get in this thing. I kid you not. This two, And I said we were up in the clouds somewhere. So you're coming down. I don't know how many miles of tube it was. I knew we had to have been going all of 60 or more miles an hour on this tube flying through this water chute. 
I actually felt like I was going to pass out. Like it was, we were moving so fast, you know, the wind blowing in your face, water hitting you in the face. And then I did mention I can't swim, right? You shoot out into a pool. Oh God. Did you have a life vest on at least? No, you, you come, you come, it's like the tail end of the slide, you come up and it's this huge ramp like thing that almost looks like the skateboarders use when they're competing. You go up at full speed, you come up the ramp, and then you come back down and you fly into the pool. And you have to jump out of the tube into the pool, into the pool to be able to get out of the tube to go back to the steps to to pass the tube off. Now, I will say that the pool itself was only three feet deep. Mm -hmm. I'm five foot two. I'm only five foot two. So I... I'm struggling to get out of this freaking tube because I feel like I got the wind knocked out of me. I'm officially traumatized. And then I fall out of the tube and I'm completely under the water. Like I went, boom, hit the bottom of the pool. So it's like, and she's cracking up laughing. She's pure entertained. She is so entertained. Nona, you're wet. Uh-huh. No, Nona's about to drown. Get me out of here. <laughs> get me out of here that was so fun can we do it again then she wants to go now you got the four tubes if you go further up into the heavens you have the individual shoots where you get in the tube and you go like this oh and you yeah lay back and you just your body flying through the tube and go flying into the pool no I just do that next year i'm not doing that <laughs> i'm not doing come on up now Mm-mm. so my mental health tip of the week goes if you can't swim, don't, don't let do your don't let your relatives suck you into getting on these crazy behind water rides that could potentially drown you because it's traumatic. That's my mental health team. And I share all the rest of them during the show. It, it sounds like manipulation was the culprit here. <laughs> she because she knows I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe you maybe you taking a, a leap of faith. And, or a plunge of faith, literally a plunge of faith. Maybe that's the spark that your Dallas Cowboys need to resurrect their chances <laughs> on this resurrection weekend. That's, I told you, Courtney, every opportunity he gets to take a cheap shot, he's going to take it. After we met with you yesterday, he was doing his happy dance. He was, he was like, <laughs> finally, finally, Dr. Pitts, I'm not in the minority. I can't believe this is the first time in all these years I have a fellow Steelers fan on with me. I was like, Ronnie, don't nobody care. Don't nobody <laughs> care that you and Courtney are Steelers fans. Nobody cares. Well, we care. So <laughs> we care. And I'm going to wave my imaginary terrible towel around. Um, so, yeah, we appreciate that uh, uh, mental health tip of the week. My tip of the week for you, Dr. Piss, is I'm going to need you to go some swimming lessons before you check on out of this uh, physical world, okay? Because, um, you know, I know I know our Lord and Savior can walk on water, but not us. So, you know, I'm going to need, need you to learn lessons. to swim in water before you can walk on water. Right. I my, my parents paid for me to take swimming lessons when I was a kid. <laughs> you know it's crazy. We actually just signed up our uh our son Eli yeah. for uh swimming lessons for next start next week. And I'm just like, man, these kids got it made. Like my swimming lesson was I just got thrown into the deep end of the pool and was told to swim back. Work. That was right. my swimming lesson. So mm-hmm. 
right, neither here nor there. I don't have any uh, uh, relevant news that was going mm-hmm. on this week. Um, I will say, though, uh, I do want to mention this. Um, and this is not necessarily sports related, but it is, um, you know, uh, national news related. And I think it is something that is kind of important to touch on. Um, we've all kind of seen what's been going on in uh, Tennessee the last this week, apparently. Um, yeah. <laughs> for those who might not know what's been going on, um, they had a school shooting two weeks ago now, I think two weeks ago now in Nashville at, I want to say like a private school or something like that. Um, six people were unfortunately killed in the incident, um, three three kids and three adults. Um, and so, you know, obviously the community of Nashville, the state of Tennessee, you know, been mourning and, you know, once again, it begs this question of gun reform, gun control, you know, all those different types of things. Well, during the uh, week, they had a protest outside, I wanna say the um, Congressional House uh, in Tennessee, where a lot of people were protesting uh, Tennessee's lack of legislation to have gun reform and, and some type of you know gun laws and things like that to maybe help mitigate and, and stipend some of these people buying you know automatic weapons, the whole nine yards. Well, of the people protesting, it was three of the congressional members in Tennessee. Uh, two of them happened to be black and one of them happened to be white. Let me ask both of you all a simple question. Out of those three Congress uh, people, who do you think were the two people who were uh, uh, unconstitutionally and unethically disbarred from the uh, Congress in Tennessee? You don't even have to answer. I can tell you for you. It was the two black gentlemen um, who lost their uh, congressional seats in Tennessee as of Thursday, I believe. The one white uh, woman who was also protesting with them, peacefully, might I add, peacefully protesting, got to keep her seat. Um, No shock there. The reason I mention this is because this is the same exact state who I want to say just last spring had a congressional hearing with the HBCUs in Tennessee and asking them, how are you all's enrollment increasing and we haven't given you all an extra dollar to you all's um, school fund? You know, literally questioning the HBCUs, like, how are y'all getting more people to come to the school? And we're not giving you more money to have more people come. Same exact state. We see this over and over again, where, you know, certain people that we put in power as citizens abuse that power. And in a state where, you know, being a person of color obviously has not been um, looked uh, favorable upon or even, you know, having some type of support, it's unfortunate that we continue to see these things happen even in 2023. If I didn't, if you didn't know no better and I told you that story, you would thought maybe we're in, you know, 1923, 1983, something like that, where that might be a little bit more believable. No, this is 2023 and we're still dealing with these things day in and day out. So I say all that to say that for all of us who are citizens who have the ability to vote, make change within your communities, I will say again, and I've said it before on the show, Local elections matter. Being in being in, in tune with your communities, asking people the proper questions, making sure we're holding people accountable as citizens. I think that's one thing we do not do a good enough job of. A lot of us are extremely comfortable with our day-to-day lives and what we allow to happen as long as it doesn't impact us directly. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, a lot of the small decisions and actions that are taking place across the country will impact us at one point or another as an entire country as we've seen it before. So I say that to all the people who can make change and want to make change, start, you know, yeah. start in your local elections, start in your local communities, and let's make this change positive, especially for people of color, because obviously our voices can easily be tuned out, our voices can easily be voted out of Congress. Mm-hmm. So we have to continue to make things 
more attainable and reasonable for our communities out there. So I just wanted you're, to you know, touch on right. that. Let me just add on to that, that the bottom line of what you're saying is your effective communication when it comes to reform is your vote. Right. Your Three. vote Absolutely. is how you communicate. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think a lot of times we don't really exercise that right as we should, especially when it comes to local elections, you know, so and blood was shed. I incur- huh? blood was shed so that we could do it. Right. Literally. Yeah. Literal blood was shed. Absolutely. You know, so I think, you know, I always tell people, you know, as, as messed up as our country is, as, as a lot of things that don't always go our way, we still have one of the greatest countries in the world that, you know, that we still have as, as, as however you want to take that greatest, you know, as you want to. But um, we still have a lot of rights and abilities as citizens to make the change we want to see as long as we do it as a collective effort and, you know, and really communicate through those type of things, which, you know, is all about our conversation today. But before we get into our topic, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest, Miss Courtney Mendenhall. So, Courtney, tell the people a little about yourself, where you're from, um, and how you got involved in sports. All right. Well, um, thank you for having me once again. And, you know, um, I'll start off by telling you guys where I'm from. I'm from Danville, Virginia. I was born and raised there, currently live there now. And I've moved around, excuse me, a couple of times um, since I've graduated from college. I went to Radford University and graduated from there in 2017 with a degree in media studies journalism. And um, I pretty much was in sports my entire life. I started playing sports when I was about four years old. I started with T-ball and then I transitioned into softball. And then when I got to about, I think, eighth grade, I started playing volleyball. So I've been in sports my whole life. Um, Come from an athletic family um, and my mom and dad played, my sister played. So it was kind of just right for me to do the same. Um, And other than that, after I graduated from Radford with my bachelor's degree, I actually um, went back for my master's and I started coaching. I coached two years at the high school level for softball, and then I went to Livingstone College and coached there for a year before COVID, and that's when everything was shut down, and I received my master's degree in 2021. Um, Since then, um, I've done several things like uh, working in customer service, uh, substitute teaching, just trying to find out what areas of sports I wanted to work in because it's so many different areas. So since I got my master's degree, I decided might as well keep going. Um, and I'm working on my doctorate right now with St. Thomas University. My awesome. doctorate degree will be in sports administration and it's a great program. I love the feedback I get from my professors. And I think that this journey is really molding me into the person and sports professional I always saw myself being. In my free time, I love to listen to music, go to the beach. I like swimming, so Miss Pitts, I can't swim. <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me. And, you know, just relaxing outside or traveling to a new city. I just love to be spontaneous and just, you know, explore things. So once again, I appreciate you all for having me on this morning. No problem. Quick, uh, quick side note, Courtney. Um, I don't know how well you know your Danville history, but um, one of the, um, I tell people, one of the most gifted athletes I've ever had the opportunity to share a field with came from Danville, Virginia, David Wilson. Have you ever heard of David yes. Wilson before? 
oh my God, David, he was, <clears throat> excuse me, he was absolutely amazing. Um, long story short, let me tell you how I met David. He probably doesn't remember me, but I definitely remember him. I was in seventh grade and I ran track for the middle school team that year. His little sister, Laura, was on the track team. So she's the first person in the, the anchor pretty much like in the race. And she's fast, just like he is, very athletic. And um, long story short, you know, several years later, she went to Rafford and ran track there. And we went to Rafford together. So when David got drafted, it was just like, man, somebody from Danville's in the NFL now. And unfortunately, he had to end his career early due to injuries. Yeah. But he's he's always been a very um, respected person in the Danville area and the surrounding areas because he the way he carried himself on the field was no different than how he carried himself in person. He was always very professional, very um, inviting, very enthusiastic he's he's a great person so I'm glad you actually um know about David because I remember when you know when I was in middle school and he was getting drafted and I'm just like well he he went to college I'm sorry not drafted and then once he got in the league you know it was just a surreal feeling to see someone from my hometown actually be in the league uh, we've had other people from Danville to go and play in the NBA or the NFL but it was somebody from my generation so it made it even more special. And I think it would, I think it would be safe to say that he's by far the greatest athlete to uh, come through Danville. Um, funny story, his senior year, I was a sophomore and they actually came to our high school because we had came to you all my freshman year. And so my sophomore year, we knew he was on the team. We knew he was a senior. And I think by this point, he had already committed to Virginia Tech. So, mm -hmm. I mean, but he already had college already signed, sealed and delivered. So, we didn't know game starts. We jump out to a 21 nothing lead. And we're sitting around looking like, we're old boy from last year at. Like, he got he got to be out here somewhere because, like, this is hope. We're sitting there like, man, this is way too easy. I kid you not. From the second quarter to the end of the game, he single-handedly by himself beat us. Little did we know, apparently he was suspended for the first quarter. Apparently he was late to school that day, whatever the case may be. So they suspended him for the first quarter. He scored eight touchdowns from quarter two through the end of the game. Seven on offense, one on defense. The one scoop and score he had on defense, I kid you not, he took off full speed from our, I think from our 40-yard line because we were driving down the field. He picked the ball up, and from our five-yard line, he did a front flip into the end zone and did not miss a stride. One of the best athletes I ever had the chance to share the field with, phenomenal talent. Like you said, unfortunate that he had that neck injury when he was with the Giants and everything that cut his career short. But he actually did try his hand at the 2016 Rio Olympics, and I think he almost made the USA team because he was an All-American athlete in track two for triple jump and I think the 100 meter. So just a right. phenomenal athlete to come from an area and, and yeah. So yeah, shout out to David Wilson, phenomenal athlete and, you know, hope he's doing well in his endeavors now. Definitely. So Courtney, you mentioned, you mentioned that you had the opportunity to coach. Uh, did you coach softball um, in high school and college or volleyball? I coached softball at the high school level for two years. My first year was at GW in Danville where David and I went to high school. And then I mm -hmm. coached an hour up the road in Lynchburg, Virginia at Heritage High School. That's the other high school aside from EC Glass in Lynchburg. Yep. yep. And um, after that, I decided to 
apply to colleges to coach there. So I went to Livingstone College and I was the head coach there until COVID shut everything down. Right. And that was for the volleyball team as well? No, that was for softball. Softball. I'm sorry. So let me ask you this. And, and with, with our topic being about communication and things like that, after graduating college and things like that and, and getting back into, you know, sports and stuff like that, what kind of philosophies or what kind of um, what kind of perspectives did you want to impart on your athletes when you were being a coach and everything? Uh, let's start off with the high school level. What were some of the things that you wanted to impress on them as a coach when you were coaching the high school level? Well, I wanted to show them that softball was just not a sport to be taken lightly. And the same way that they played other sports, I had a lot of people that were, excuse me, um, basketball players. So some of the skills that they learned in that sport could actually help them with softball. And, you know, I wanted to let them know like, hey, you can't just walk out on the field and say, hey, I'm going to go play softball. I mean, if you're naturally talented, you know, you can do that. But you have to practice at softball just like you do anything else. And I don't think softball is starting to get a little bit more recognition now. So when I first met them, you know, they didn't really know much about it. And there were a couple of people that, you know, were familiar with the rules and how to feel the ball, hit the ball, but they needed to tune up some skills and mechanics. So when I got to Heritage, it was a different type of environment. Those girls all knew how to play and it was just like helping them stay sharp with their skills. A lot of them played travel ball and that probably was the most competitive district I've ever coached in. It's called the Seminole district. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we had girls in that district that were committed to play at schools like Clemson and UConn and UVA. I mean, it was amazing. You could see, you know, the, the talent and the, the hard work that goes into it every single day, those girls, they were fast, agile, they were very determined. They were very competitive, but they did it in a way where it was still professional and they weren't demeaning themselves or their teammates. So communicating those type of things to my players that, you know, may not have had as much experience was a challenge at first. But I really think that once they saw how much I was passionate about it, then it started to rub off on them. Right. And so going from the high school level to college and you said that um you got the head coach position at Livingstone correct yes so how was that jump from going from you know, like you said uh, at first the high school that you know the athletes kind of needed a little bit more coaching on the technique the fundamentals the you know the intricacies of the game then going to another high school that kind of had everything already established it was more about just you know, being the cohesive, being the glue and being a cohesive pe person that could really maximize their talent. And then now going to a HBCU, you know, softball program and being the head coach. What was that transition like? And then how did you, did you feel like you had to shift your mindset or shift your ideology becoming a college head coach? Well, I would say, I'll be honest. I didn't think I was ready to be a head coach at a college. Um, I was trying to get an assistant coaching position to shadow someone that already had years of experience doing what I wanted to do. And, you know, I applied to different schools to get the job and Livingstone was really the only one that reached back out and they were like, Hey, we want you to come down for an interview. And I had been in touch with the former softball coach and it was a little different as far as the uh, what's the word I want to say, the compliance rules and, travel you have to create 
agendas when you travel mm-hmm. because you travel further than what you would if you played at the high school level. And right. there a lot of different regulations and stuff I had to consider so I wouldn't be out of compliance. Um, the main thing I would say I was worried about was the game plan because as an assistant coach two years at the high school level, I didn't really, uh, I coached first base, but I didn't really like call the pitches or I didn't call the plays. I was just coaching first base and then I helped my players with drills. But at the college, I had to coach third base. So I'm like, oh my God. And then, you know, they asked me, do you know how to take the book and do the stats? I'm like, well, I can't do third and do that at the same time. So I have to have some help, but you know, it worked out. And I wanted to share this briefly because I still remember um, the day it happened, but our first doubleheader we had on March 2nd, 2020, we got, it was the first and second games of the season. We won both games and it was raining outside. And I just remember standing there like, man, I'm finally co- uh, coaching college softball. And one of my pitchers had 10 strikeouts. The other one had seven strikeouts and the adrenaline was just going. And we were just so excited and they were just so happy that we won because they hadn't won games in that program for a long time. So they were happy that they were, they could come in and make the change and we all work together. I think um, the main thing was that my communication skills actually got better as the, as I kept going in my coaching experiences because those girls uh, were in college, but they still needed guidance. So I had to be that person to step in and tell them, Hey, this is what you need to prioritize. This is what needs to happen. You know, if you have a problem, come talk to me and that you have plenty of resources out here that you can communicate with that will help you go forward. Awesome. That's go ahead, Dr. Pitts. Yeah, I want to Courtney, thank you for saying that because it, it brings up a point that I, I wanted to add in that that falls right in line. And you 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 said it, I'm I'm gonna reframe it. I think one of the key things about effective communication is understanding that it's essential in building rapport and developing relationships. Well, what Mm -hmm. is at the essence of a cohesive team? Those relationships. And what it sounds like is you did an outstanding job of creating that safe space, being able to build that trust, being able to, to... to meet your players where they were in a way that helped them to be that much more productive. And I wonder, and I know this is gonna sound gender biased and I don't mean for it to, but it's, it's this question has been nagging at me. When you think about the fact that for us as, as girls and women, people are always talking about how emotional we are. What is it like, or what was it like for you, particularly coaching a girls softball team that, from what you described, had a history of losing, and then to make that transition? How did your communication skills help you to help them with their emotional regulation and attitude and and state of mind to transition to winners? It wasn't an easy thing, and I'm glad you brought this up because it was one of the things that probably helped me further along in the other things I've done. I would say my journalism skills really came in handy when it came to dealing with this type of situation, because as a journalist, you have to look at the facts. You can't take sides. You have to be fair. 
and you have to make sure that everything is ethical. So when speaking to the girls, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm putting myself and my feelings to the side and I'm going to make a decision because I want to do what's best for my girls and in the team. I want them to have a great experience. I want them to learn not just how to play softball, but life lessons, just like how I learned. So it was a little tough at first. You know, we had some things here and there that kind of made me think, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? But, you know, at the end of the day, the way they would look at me sometimes, like with happiness and joy and admiration, they were happy that I was there. And, you know, they were telling me, Coach, I really do appreciate all the things you do. So I wanted to highlight that as well, because even though we had a few rough times, the good times outweighed And um, communication is something that I've taken very seriously from day one. You know, I think it's it really molds and shows what type of person you are that you can communicate effectively. And I'll say this every time, though. I think that those type of skills are needed in every single profession because you have to know how to tell people news. You have to know how to tell them things and get the answers. And not only do you have to know how to tell people things, but you have to know how to receive the information as well. You have to look out for verbal cues, your nonverbal communication, as uh, Mr. Ronnie said. And, you know, it's just, it's very complex, but it's very interesting to me, I think. You made a really great point, and I'm glad you asked this question, Dr. Pitts, um, because, you know, when we think of like, you know, coaching styles between the genders and things like that, and I want to ask you this, Courtney, um, when you were playing and also at, you know, as you becoming a coach at the high school level and collegiate level, um, did you experience as an athlete, you know, uh, coaches who might have used um, not threatening language, but very like aggressive language towards you and, and you know, as a coach. Um, and did you ever find that, you know, maybe having to be stern or more assertive with your players, especially at the high school, you know, and even into the collegiate level? Um, did you ever feel like, you know, your sternness or, you know, your assertiveness as, you know, being able to enforce, you know, rules and boundaries with your athletes? Did you ever feel like you had to cross the line and maybe, you know, yell at somebody or curse at somebody? Um, <laughs> We experience that a lot in, in in male like football, like you know, very often, very rarely did I have coaches who would just you know like calmly or you know really you know try to walk you through situations. We did have coaches, but for the most part, our head coach was like you know if I if I can't you know get it through to you talking, I'm gonna have to just yell or curse you out. And at that point, we definitely got the message, you know. So how was your experiences with that? As an athlete, I've had different experiences with different coaches. And when I became a coach, I decided to sit down one day and write down the traits of all of the coaches I've ever had and look at their traits and see what I responded to and what I didn't like to respond to. And then I thought about it because I started studying for my master's program and we had to learn about coaching philosophies and behaviors and cohesion and communication. And I was like, well, as a coach, I don't want to do this because I remember how that made me feel. As a coach, I do want to do this because I think that worked for me and I think I can transform it into something that will work for them. So you have to consider people's personalities and their ways of communication as well. So you have to be a sponge and just basically take everything in. Uh, there were times where I had one coach um, she was tough on me 
and it was obvious. I mean, the whole gym knew my name by the end of the, the game. <laughs> but when I look back on it years later, she was being hard because she wanted me to excel and she saw a lot in me. Now, when I was at um, Livingstone, the girls wanted me to yell at them. And I told them, I'm like, no disrespect to coaches that do yell, but I don't feel like I need to yell to prove my point. They're like, no, I want you to be more hard on me. I'm like, okay, if you say so. But when I start doing it, I don't want you to get mad. So I remember it up a notch and they responded to it very well. And they understood where I was coming from, that I was not trying to demean them or, you know, point them out or make them feel like they're not capable. So um, I did have to talk to a couple of players. They were like, coach, I understand you want me to do this, but I feel like it's coming down too hard on me. And I told them, don't take it personally because I'm not going to tell them anything wrong or tell them something that, you know, is not going to help them. So they responded to it very well. And I was yelled at a lot when I was coached. So I was just like, man, I just want to be out here to play ball. Just tell me what I need to fix and just let me play. But, you know, every group I've coached, they've wanted me to be assertive. So I brought that side out. And I think that's the only time you'll see that unless I got really mad. (laughs) But um, it gives me an adrenaline rush when they tell me, like, we want you to get fired up too, coach. So I think Mm -hmm. I had experience with that. Word, word. Ronnie and and Courtney, uh, I want to interject the mental health piece into this because I, uh, what you're both saying makes an exorbitant amount of sense to me. The concern that I have with the mental health piece is, and it speaks to what you said, Courtney, with that dichotomy between athletes that were saying yell and athletes that were saying you're being too hard, is that communication, particularly poor communication, can have an adverse impact on mental health, right? Mm -hmm. So when you are dealing with someone who, and and as the side note, right, we know that all athletic environments are not conducive to this open door policy to discuss issues that are being had with one's mental health. So hypothetically, if you're dealing with an athlete that is experiencing some form of mental distress and, and feelings of disparity and and some of the other adverse emotional experiences that go with mental health issues, I think to your point, it's so critically important to be able to distinguish between who's going to be receptive and who's not instead of having this blanket approach to how you deal with your players. You know, one of the things that we've just we dealt with so much last year and it's it's an issue right because one of the things that research is showing us is that there is an escalation in the mental health issues among scholar and professional athletes so what that speaks to is fragility so if you have coaches that have this blanket style of coaching without taking into consideration that some of their players may be experiencing mental health issues that haven't been disclosed because it's not an emotionally safe place to do so. Unfortunately, you could be that coach that imposes the straw that breaks the camel's back and pushes that athlete over the edge. So I think that it's so incredibly important, which is why Ronnie and I say almost every single solitary week, 
It's not enough to have counselors on campus. You have to have mental health practitioners that are assigned and subcontracted to work specifically with these athletic teams because you all are, as coaches, unless you happen to be a coach that's also a clinician, you don't have the appropriate skill set to be able to manage the mental health challenges that some of your athletes are presenting with. The other additive that goes with that where mental health practitioners and, and team relationships are concerned is this. Ronnie and I can walk into a room and we, you talk about communication, right? For us as clinicians, nonverbals are screaming at us. You know, we're looking at eyes, we're looking at posture, we're looking at, we're reading between the lines. Well, what you say speak volumes, but what you don't say speaks volumes too. There's, there's different nuances in communication that are red flags to us all day, every day that a coach is not necessarily going to see because right. your job as coach is to get the win, right? right. So I, I, I appreciate you acknowledging that, you know, there's this difference. And for those players that say this, you know, coach, this is too hard. What you said is spot on. It's absolutely correct, right? Like, don't take it personal. One step beyond that is what about the athlete who's experiencing distress that because of everything else that's going on in their life, they're taking everything personal because mm -hmm. they're overwhelmed and don't have that safe space to communicate. Hey. Ronnie, please. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad you kind of segued into that because I wanted to kind of <laughs> share this perspective. And um, I hope this doesn't sound condescending or contradiction in what we're talking about. But Courtney, you made a great point, and Dr. Pitts, you did a great job of, of um, expounding on it. And one thing I wanted to add to the point of, you know, when players are saying, you know, well, coach, you're coaching me too hard, or, you know, coach, I don't appreciate how you're talking to me. One of the things that my, one of my college coaches, my head coach, actually, one of the things he used to always say to us, because Coach Scott was an a-hole, a to put it nicely, but a, <laughs> but a, but a respectable a-hole, like, if you wanted to know how he felt about you, just ask. He was going to tell you, like, no no sugarcoating, no beating around the bush. Coach Scott, how you feel about me? Whatever it was. One of the things he used to always emphasize to us, though, even with his, because one of his uses, one of the things his philosophy was is my job is to create chaos in a controlled environment. So my job is to make practice chaotic. My job is to make these meetings chaotic, weight room chaotic in a controlled environment because the game will be chaotic. The game will always not go according to plan. With that being said, part of that also is having that mental resilience. So his method of, you know, really helping us with our mental resilience is that he would, you know, say, you know, call us names and, you know, tell us, you know, things that probably you should not repeat to people at all. However, you know, I'm not going to say them out loud because, you know, we don't have enough blurs, you know, for me to get it all out. But, you know, you can probably, you know, fill in the blanks of what a coach might say to you, um, you know, when they're pissed off. But one of the things he used to always say, and it made it at first, it didn't make a lot of sense because it's like, well, I still don't need to be called that. But he said, if I if I call you something or if I say you're something, I'm talking about your actions and behaviors, not who you are as the person. For example. Let's say we're in practice and let's say one of the linemen, they fall start two or three times in the midst of like five or six plays. 
obviously you are not paying attention. You're not focused on what we're doing. You know, whatever the case, your mind is somewhere else other than practice. So <laughs> coaches be like, you stupid a-hole, like watch the ball. You know the count, something like that. Some days, you know, players shake it off, whatever. But then, you know, you have days, like you said, where, you know, you got other things going on, other things on your mind. So coach call you a stupid a this specific day, you really take it personal getting your feelings. And it's important to understand this as athletes that coaches have a specific job. And it might differ between, you know, men's sports and women's sports, but I would like to think that the essence of coaches being able to motivate their players in a way to get that ignite, ignite that fire in them. A lot of times, you know, I've seen, I've had teammates who, you know, the moment you critique them or say something about them, they shut down, they go within themselves. And I get that, you know, like Dr. Pitt said, if you have other things going on outside of the realm of sports where you're overly critiqued, you're overjudged, and you really don't have a safe space to express yourself and that your sport is supposed to be that thing, I can understand that. But I think a lot of times too, with especially our younger athletes, there's a difference in criticizing and feeling like you are entitled to not be told anything. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you this, Courtney, because so when I finished playing, um, I had coached for two years at a private school. Now, mind you, the private school, brand new football program, the athletes, some of them, we actually had, I think, five of the athletes, no, six of them actually went on to play college football. We got six of them to go play college football off a team of like 25 kids, not a lot of kids. One of the things I used to always tell kids, and I, and I tell the kids nowadays a lot, especially with social media. A lot of times these athletes nowadays, they want to show off and, you know, oh, I can do this. Oh, I'm in the weight room, X, Y, and Z. When you put them on the field, they get mad the moment you tell them about themselves because they're not putting in the effort. I used to always tell kids, like, if you think I'm coaching you hard right now, when you get to college and you're on scholarship or if you're on a college football team or whatever, whatever college sports you play at that level, you're there because of the coach, not the other way around. You are replaceable. So with that being said, you have to be mindful of how you, as well as the athlete, communicate with the coaches. If you come off as you can't critique me, you can't tell me what to do and things like that, that coach right there is looking at you like, son or, or, or ma'am, I recruited you to this campus. I recruited you to be a part of this team and fit into our mold and our identity. If you want to be a standout rebel, whatever the case may be, there's no place for that in this team. And I've seen that a lot. And sometimes even coaches themselves will take a player being um, defensive or you know going against the grain personal themselves. And that's when you start to see the personal shots come out and things like that. So I always find it interesting when, you know, players, how, you know, how they receive different coaching styles and stuff like that, especially when it comes to critique, because at the end of the day, I think there's a difference in critiquing a player on their ability and critiquing the person who they are. And a lot of times athletes take it personal, like both of you all said, but I think also two athletes also have to remember too, A, it's a privilege to play a sport regardless of the sport. It's absolute privilege because none of us have to play the sport. It's not like nobody puts a gun to our head or forces us to play a sport, whatever the case may be, and especially the higher levels you get. So I think, you know, when we talk about coaches and athletes and their communication styles and how they mesh with each other, I think it's really important for both of them to understand each other's perspectives in a way that can gel with the team. If it's a team sport, if it's an individual sport, I really can't speak much on that because I didn't play a lot of individual sports, but I would imagine the coaching style will probably be a lot different as in a team sport, because individual sport, it's really just about the individual. So, you know, is what it is. But I just wanted to really touch on that real quick, because I think both of you all made great points about really understanding how you can critique your players and things like that. And, and Courtney, one of the points I actually had that I was going to share later is like really understanding your team. 
and how you said, like, you know, at, at Livingstone, they wanted you to be a serve. They wanted you to coach them a certain way because that's probably the style they were used to and would breeze the most results. Whereas other teams might be like, hey, coach, you know what? You ain't got to yell at us. Just do what you got to do, you know? So let me ask you this. So I know you said that, you know, COVID kind of interrupted, you know, your coaching career and things like that. Do you have any plans of possibly going back to coaching or even coaching at the collegiate level in the near future? That's a great question. Um, people ask me that all the time. And, you know, I tell them I'll just just take it day by day and see what comes, what opportunities come my way. I'm not stressing out to find somewhere to coach. I still uh, want to be involved in it some way. But, you know, um, I started coaching to – I wasn't expecting to become a coach to begin with. And, you know, coming out of school, I wanted to work in journalism. And then, you know, that didn't work. So I decided to start coaching because I had already went back to school for my master's. So I said, okay, well, if I'm not working as a journalist, I would love to be a coach. Now that I've gotten more years of experience in the working world, I've seen that, you know, that passion for journalism and writing has really never left. It's one mm. of the things that helped mold me into being a coach. So I believe, you know, one day I might go back to it. I'm not opposed to it. If so, um, it doesn't really matter if it's D1, D2, or D3. I just want to be able to help those girls have, you know, good experiences and help them become adults that can continue to pass down the knowledge and that care and appreciation and love that was shown to me when I was an athlete. Right. As, uh, you know, being in, in journalism and things like that, how did you use to um, talk with your players about like how they handle social media and how they express themselves on social media and things like that? Because I think sometimes smaller school athletes like at D2, D3 level, even, you know, FCF school levels, I think a lot of times athletes think because their school isn't really notarized or really big that when they put stuff on social media, oh, who's going to see this? Nobody's going to care about me being a third baseman at Livingstone. You know, why the hell would anybody care what I post until it goes viral or until you find yourself kicked off the team? So how did you use to communicate to your players about being mindful of what they put on social media and the lasting consequences of putting something out there that they can't unsend or untweet? I told them, you know, I'm not going to tell you what you should and shouldn't put on there, but be responsible, be respectful, and understand that you're representing not only your teammates, but the school as a whole. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions about HBCUs and they're a little different from PWIs. As I mentioned before, I went to a PWI and um, the culture of it is different. But aside from that, when it comes to the stuff they put on social media, I think that you know it's very important to be mindful of what you put on there because my mom tells me this all the time. She's like, Courtney, even if you're friends with somebody on Facebook and you're not friends with this person, your friend could screenshot that and send it to that person that's not even your friend and they can see right. it and then they send it around. So I told them, be smart. Don't do anything out of the ordinary. You want to play softball. You have to keep up your grades. You have to stay out of trouble and that's it. If you put something up there, and I find out about it, or if it gets sent around, then we're going to have a conversation with the AD because I told him I wasn't dealing with any type of back and forth on social media stuff because I've had bad experiences on social media in the past myself. And I've always um, used social media as a tool 
So I express that to my players, you know, use it as a tool. And if you want to, like when we come home from a game and you want to take a quick Snapchat of us like riding in the bus and y'all are hyped because we just won or we're doing something fun at practice and you want to take a picture or something, put that up there, you know, show if you want to show people that we're actually um, not just going through the motions, we're actually out here having fun and, you know, positive things, that's okay. But you do have to be careful um, as a young lady on social media anyway. I think um, you two have seen recently about uh, women's basketball, about Angel Reese and how she was perceived yeah. by the media. So I told them, I'm like, look, some people will be looked at differently than others based on what they say, who they are, what they do, what they don't do. So you have to be one step ahead of them and you have to be smart about what you put on there because they will take it and run with it and they'll just create a whole thing out of it. Absolutely. I was I was waiting to see if you was going to say that, you know, one of your methods to uh, make sure that your athletes uh, were not uh, wilding out on social media was that you had people around campus uh, keeping track of that for you. Like our uh, football coach, when I was in college, um, he would um, give people like $20, maybe $30 here and there to, you know, follow us on social media and keep him abreast of any um, malicious activity. Because for the longest time, we could never figure out how the hell he knew what was going on, how you know where the next football party is, how you know what Big Blue is doing. And if you know what Big Blue is, you know, like how you know all that is. Like, and, ain't no, and we know for a fact nobody on the team is just willfully giving that information. So we ended up finding out that he had people on campus that he would just be walking through campus and be like, hey, you know, you follow such and such on the team and whatnot. Well, you know, you want to follow them and let me know if anything's going on. <laughs> hey, drastic measures, measures, but it worked because to your point, his point was the moment you put something out there that not only has an impact on not you, the individual, but the team, the school, your family, your community, all those things. One tweet, one video, one post that, you know, you can't take back can ruin not only your career, but can ruin a lot of other people's careers and chances. Exactly. Um, so, so I'm glad I'm glad you touched on that. Go ahead, Dr. Pitts. I, I was just going to say, because I think that that's a weird time and time is going. Um, I think that that's a, a good segue to helping our audience understand how to how to manage the barriers that arise when it comes to effective communication, because you, you both just touched on some key things, right? So the cultural, right? There's, mm -hmm. when, I, when I think about, and we talk all the time, I, it was last week or the week before when, um, when we were talking about the demographic breakdown within the sports world, right? And we know right, yeah. that there are certain sports that have a higher participation rate by African-Americans. And there's, mm -hmm. uh, there's some sports that have a higher participation rate by Caucasians. There may be some sports that have a higher participation by Asians. And so all of those things have to be taken into consideration because when you connect cultural barriers to semantic barriers. And I think about that, you know, if there's somebody by chance that doesn't know what semantic is, it's the, the meaning of, of logic in, in language, right? So when I think about that word, like to me, logic for some people is almost a cuss word. <laughs> well, I mean, like when you tie semantics to culture, that's a huge, huge, huge gap between how, you know, 
ethnic minorities may be communicating A, B, C, D, E, F, or G. Well, what's, you know, when you look at that, for example, within the context of a sense of urgency, Mm. you come from a traumatic background, you come from an impoverished background, you come from the hood, (laughs) semantics and culture, that gets communicated a lot different than folks that come from more affluent settings or whatever the case may be. So I think that is so important, particularly in, in a coaching context, right? When, when you both mentioned a moment ago, like the this two-way street between how athletes are communicating with the coaches, how coaches are communicating with athletes, it oftentimes I, I, uh, I reference movies that are sports origin that are based on true stories. And it reminds me of um, Glory Road and Remember the Titans. Uh. Love, both love, of those, yeah, right. They're two of my favorites, right? But both of those movies are great examples of where semantics and culture created these huge communication barriers uh, between the coaching staff and the players, but also between the players too. And I think that it's so important for our audience to understand that you can't assume where communication is concerned, there are going to be barriers and you have Mm -hmm. to be proactive. Ronnie talks all the time about, it's not enough to just go to, a Trey said it last week, it's not enough to just go to a training. You have to submerge yourself. You You have to submerge yourself in culture. You have to be deliberate and intentional in educating yourself and empowering yourself to be able to better understand whomever it is you're coaching or whoever it is you're being coached by so that those barriers can be removed. And then for us as clinicians, those psychological barriers, man, the mental health piece is, is huge, 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 huge. And I would, if you, if you would both just because you both coach, but you both played, if you could speak to your perspective on the psychological barriers, as well as physical barriers and physiological barriers that can definitely impede effective communication in sport. Courtney, by all means, go first. Okay. <clears throat> I think that's a very important aspect, the psychological part. Um, I learned a lot from Rafford in sociology and psychology classes I took. And, you know, my teachers were really being real and breaking stuff down. And they were telling us, you know, what certain behaviors or certain things are like in this ethnic group, in this ethnic group, that ethnic group. So when I got to Livingstone, well, actually back up. When I was at GW, my first year coaching, the most of the team was African-American. So I had a couple of players that were Caucasian. So it was, it wasn't any different. Like I understood where most of my players were coming from because myself, I'm also African-American. So I get it. When I got to my second school, um, that school I would say was probably, I don't know, maybe half and half, I guess. And they were used to uh, coexisting together because, you know, they have different um, people in that school and they know how, you know, each person communicates. So there's no miscommunication about 
um, this is how we do this in my culture. This is how we do this in my culture. Now, when I got to Livingstone, it was predominantly black. And I did have a couple of um, Caucasian players and they didn't, you know, they it, they understood everything that was going on. And they wanted to understand the different cultures that were not theirs. So when it comes to psychological things, you know, if two players clashed about something, I had to go back to that psychological piece and be like, hey, this is why she thinks this. And this is why you think this. So you guys have to come to a mutual understanding because sports is 90% mental anyway. Right. So you have to think before you act. You have to think before you speak. <laughs> you can't just certain things in certain um, cultures are not okay. And you have to understand that and you have to adapt to it. So it wasn't really difficult trying to bring people together because I've always wanted to do that no matter what organization I've been in the lead of. I've always wanted to bring people together no matter where they come from, how they grew up, you know, what background their parents came from or anything like that. I've always wanted to bring people together. So the psychological piece, as Dr. Pitts mentioned, is very important. And I think me considering that because I had taken psychology and sociology in my undergraduate years really helped me as a coach because it helped it helped me understand how to relate to different um, cultures and different types of uh, ways of living, if that makes sense. You know, I wasn't just out mm -hmm. there teaching them how to throw the ball the correct way, but teaching them how to be better communicators with each other. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, Dr. Pitts, if you don't mind, I'm going to answer the question. And then I know we got a, a few minutes left before we wrap up the show. I mm -hmm. was going to go over some just some tips and everything I wanted to leave with the audience. Um, to just keep in mind um, from a coach's perspective and an athlete's perspective. Um, and then you can so close the that. I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> okay, cool. So um, to answer the, the physiological uh, question about the importance of, of coaching and communication, um, and I'll speak from um, just the football perspective, because you, you've heard me say before, I think a football team is, and no offense to the other sports, this is my opinion, I think football teams are the closest resemblance of the societies that they're in, because one of the amount of players that are on a team, typically football teams have anywhere from 50 to 100 players, depending on level and, you know, things like that. So you have a large amount of, of athletes on a team. And you might have maybe four or five coaches. And I think to uh, Courtney's point, I think understanding a who you're coaching. Um, and that's one of the points I'll, I'll share uh, as I close out, but who you're coaching, where they come from and what's the ideology. I would like to think that most coaches who run a program, kind of like Courtney mentioned, that they have their own set of ideologies that they've either picked up along the way through their athletic career, their early coaching career, or just things they've just, you know, in life that just makes sense, you know, how to run, you know, running a team is no different than running a business or an organization and things like that, because you have you, the, the coach, the director, CEO, whatever the case may be, has a has a, 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 a vision, has a mission statement, has a clear ideology of how you want things to run and is getting your athletes and your other coaches to buy into that perspective. Now, we know and, and like Courtney also said. Um, when I was in high school, I was at a predominantly white high school, but our football team was predominantly, uh, I would say it was like 65, 35, you know, uh, black to white. When I was in college, 
98% black and, you know, me and one other people were the only, you know, half white people on the team. So we made up like one white person on the team combined. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so we were, so, you know, it was predominantly black and, you know, but one thing I will say, and this doesn't, this doesn't work for all coaches, especially in football. But I would like to say that the coaches that I had, except for high school, because my high school coach was prejudiced as I don't know what, that's a whole different conversation. But I would like to think that most coaches do a very good job of regardless of color, treating them with respect as men, as young men. And I think one of the things for not to be stereotypical or because or, or, I've never coached women or anything, so I can't speak on that. But I know as a guy and being a coach and being a player, you have to be able to coach men a certain way where you gain their respect. And I've walked in the locker rooms where the players do not respect the coach simply because his his psychological ideologies do not match his message. Meaning that if he's a coach who's, who's enforcing being early as opposed to being on time, but he's showing up late to the meeting. If he's talking about, look, I'm gonna start you and you ride the bench all year. You know, if he tells you, you know, I'm gonna make sure your scholarship is good, but then you lose out and gotta apply for student loans and things like that. All those type of things, when the coach's psychological ideologies do not match his message and match his behaviors, you lose the trust of your team. And when you lose the trust of your team, I've been on teams that were loaded with talent. I mean, my high school, unfortunately, we have far too many people who do not get a chance to be adequately coached and get a chance at a fair shot of college. My first two years in college, love, love uh, my uh, head coach at the time, but his ideologies did not match his message. You know, his behaviors did not match his message. And because of that, when I walked in as a freshman, once again, like Dr. Pitt said, as a clinician, even well before I was a clinician, I understood body language very well at an early age. And I would see the body language of the juniors and seniors on the team and how they would roll their eyes or how they would be on their phones or how they would get up and go to the bathroom and be gone for 30 minutes during the meeting and come back and be like, oh, what I missed. Have no care in the world because they did not buy in and respect his message. So I think it's extremely important for a head coach and the coaching staff to a have a unison ideology of what they want the team to look like from the top to the bottom. That's important because you're only as good as your weakest link. And you'll hear many coaches say that you're only as good as your weakest player, as your weakest coach, everybody on the staff. <clears throat> so I think that is really important. And so I just want to close this out. I'm not going to ramble on too much longer, but I want to just close us out with some tips that coaches and athletes can take with them to keep in mind about how they can improve their uh, communication skills. First and foremost, and we've talked about this a lot, listening. Listening is one of the greatest skills that you can have. Life lesson, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. I'm gonna say that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say on that. Number two, building trust. What does building trust look like as a coach? Being your authentic self. If there's one thing athletes respect, is a coach who is not ashamed or embarrassed to be their authentic self. Because as athletes, we are entrusting our career in you. We're entrusting that you're gonna give us the knowledge, the insight, the resources, and the tools to make us better athletes and better people. But when we can't trust your efforts, when we can't trust your behavior, when we can't trust your words, there cannot simply be any trust that is built amongst the team. So being able to build reliable trust. <clears throat> Number three, we've touched on this a lot. Understand who you're coaching. As a coach, it is extremely important to understand your demographics of your team, where they're from, what their makeup is, and who they are as individuals. Because yes, as a team, can you coach a team a certain way? Absolutely. But amongst that team, 
you have to be able to understand who is in that team and how they make the team a collective. And if you do not do that, and if you think you can coach every single person with a cookie cutter mindset, you're not going to be coaching very long. Number four, focus on getting better rather than being good. I think a lot of times coaches sometimes struggle with this idea of being good or great as opposed to getting better. Part of coaching is helping under, uh, helping athletes really keep a perspective about it's not perfection the goal that we're trying to obtain. Perfection isn't what we're trying to obtain. We're just trying to be the best version of ourselves as possible. And that might look different from every team, every player, every individual, and what that looks like. So as a coach, help your teammates, help your coaches on getting better rather than being good. Good is an end goal. What does good look like? Well, once I've reached good, can I get any better than good? Yes or no. But if I focus on getting better, getting better looks like, well, I've come a long ways. I'm proud of where I've come. But here are some of the things I continue to want to work on and become an even better version of myself. Let you know that, yes, you've accomplished a lot of things, but there's still a journey ahead of you to look forward to and live for. Number five, communicate your values. Extremely important as a coach. What are your values? In other words, what are your principles, your absolute no-goes, your absolute non-negotiables as a human? A coach is what you do. Who you are and what you do are your values and your principles. That should not change just because you put a coaching hat on. Because if you have different values and are trying to impress different values as a coach, as opposed to who you are as a person, trust me, athletes will see through that fakeness in a heartbeat. Um, and then just some uh, quick little tips from uh, Coach John Wooden, famous basketball coach from UCLA. He, he used to keep this little note card in his pocket. And he used to say, be true to yourself, help others, make each day your masterpiece, drink deeply from good books, especially the good book, make friendship a fine art, build a shelter for a rainy day, and pray for guidance and count and give thanks for your blessings each day. Now that's for the coaches out there. Players, I got something for you real quick. I'm gonna read through them really quick because I know we gotta go. But I think this is important too because just as important as for coaches to understand communication, the leaders of teams, the players who are the leaders of teams, here are six R's to remember when you're trying to be a good leader for your team. Number one, being able to remind your team uh, well, being able to remind them of what's going on, keep them in the moment, keep them where their feet are. For example, if you're in a game, we've got two outs. Let's get this last out at first base. Be sure to lock in. That's reminding your uh, your team of where we're trying to go. Reinforce. Vocal leaders spend a lot of time reinforcing the positive strides made by the team. An example of that might be, I see you. That's great effort in pushing through that difficult set. Re-energize. There will be many times during practices and competition when vocal leaders need to pick up the team's energy, energy level and enthusiasm. So that might look like, hey, let's pick it up. We got a chance to have a special season. Now it's time to earn it. Reassure. <clears throat> because there are so many obstacles, setbacks and ab uh, adversities involved in every season, vocal leaders need to reassure their teammates when they're feeling nervous, scared, frustrated, helpless and hopeless. Right. So an example of that might be. We've got a lot of time to get back to this game, y'all. Take it one step at a time and we'll be okay. Refocus. Vocal leaders spend a lot of time helping teammates refocus their negative thoughts onto something more positive and productive. So that might look like, yes, officiating is horrendous. How many times have we said that as athletes and coaches? Yes, officiating is horrendous, but we can't control that. Focus on our game plan and let, let's make the necessary adjustments, right? That's helping your team refocus and remember what the goal here and what the prize is. And last but not least, if you have to, reprimand. Vocal leaders must have the ability to constructively confront and reprimand their teammates when necessary. They must hold them accountable to live up to and maintain the team's rules and standards. An example of that might look like, I know you're tired. 
but giving up on that last sprint is not what we're all about. We need you to push through this next one, right? So that's all I wanted to share with you all today. Uh, Courtney, thank you once again. I think we got you coming on in a couple more weeks, right? I think so, yes. Come, yeah, I think we got you coming back in a couple more weeks. Courtney, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you sharing your um, your, your, your your wisdom, your insight. Um, looking forward to be calling you Dr. Mendenhall uh, soon. <laughs> I'm more power to both of you all. I don't see myself crossing that venture no time soon, unless <laughs> one of you all want to, you know. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Courtney, thank you again for coming on. Dr. Pitts, I hope you have a great rest of the day too. Everybody enjoy the resurrection weekend. Um, be safe out there. Uh, and we'll be back next week for episode 120. So make sure you check us out here. Also, oh, real quick, silly me, Courtney. How can people find you? Let the people know how they can find you, what business endeavors you got going on so we can let everybody know. I work with Focus Point Mental Health in Danville, Virginia. So on my Facebook page, I do have that I work there. My name on Facebook is Courtney J. Mendenhall. And on my Instagram and Twitter, and what's the other one? I think that's it. Um, I have my first and middle name, but my middle name is kind of hard to spell. So I'm going to spell it out. It's um Courtney with a C, and then it's Janae. So my middle name is J H as in house, Y, N A I I. So it's two I's at the end and then an mm. underscore. That's a really dope way to spell Janae. My dad did it. Don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to be creative. That's all. He's like, mm, yeah. my baby gonna have my baby gonna have a unique name out here. Mm -mm, I ain't going for that. <laughs> That's dope, though. Shout out to Pops. Shout out to Pops. Well, thank you, Courtney. Make sure you all check us out on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to the page. Make sure you also check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, MySpace, Black Planet, Google, ChatGBT, everything in between. We'll be back here next Saturday, same time, same place. Everybody have a great day. You got it.